The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 49, to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. Why should I fear in the days of evil? when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me. Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. For he sees wise men die like the fool and the senseless person perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever, their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish, and of their posterity who approve their sayings. Selah. Like sheep they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Selah. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him, though while he lives, he blesses himself. For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. A man who is in honor yet does not understand is like the beasts that perish. Okay, we're in Joshua chapter 12 today. It's verses 7 through 24. We'll finish up the chapter. A little different when we get to the uh, second part of this uh, section. And these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel conquered on this side of the Jordan, on the west from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, as far as Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir, which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions. In the mountain country, in the lowlands, in the Jordan plain, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the south, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Deber, one. The king of Geder, one. The king of Hormah, one. The king of Arad, one. The king of Livna, one. The king of Adullam, one. The king of Makeda, one. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Tapua, one. The king of Hefer, one. The king of Afek, one. The king of Lasharon, one. The king of Madon, one. The king of Hatzor, one. The king of Shimron Maron, one. The king of Achsaf, one. The king of Ta'anach, one. The king of Megiddo, one. The king of Kadesh, one. The king of Jokneam in Carmel, one. The king of Dor and the heights of Dor, one. The king of the people of Gilgal, one. The king of Terza, one. All the kings, 31. At times, the typology in the book of Joshua can be rather hard to pin down. The more names of people and locations there are, the more difficult it can be to decipher the typology. And there are a lot of parts of Joshua that heap on the names. As you saw last week, and as we will see again this week, that is certainly the case with chapter 12. I will be honest, I'm not even going to attempt to try to give you the meaning of every name. 
I will give enough information to demonstrate what this account is telling us about the work of Christ, but I'm not going to start making unfounded conclusions just to tickle your ears. It is easy to make anything say anything. That does not interest me at all. However, I do believe every word that is given, including every name, has a purpose. By contrast, Jameson Fawcett Brown comes to a different conclusion. For example, from their commentary on verse 7, they say, Baal God, even unto Halak. A list of 31 chief towns is here given. And as the whole land contained a superficial extent of only 15 miles in length by 50 in breadth, it is evident that these capital cities belong to petty and insignificant kingdoms. With a few exceptions, there were not the scenes of any important events recorded in the sacred history, and here he goes, and therefore do not require a particular notice. Our text first comes from Proverbs 30, which would disagree with their assessment. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. It should be noted that the distance concerning the length of Israel that was given by Jameson Fawcett Brown is about 115 miles, not 15. Also, to say that these locations do not require a particular notice when that is exactly why God has included them in his word is a bit troubling to me. There may not be a lot of commentary that can be derived from these names, but they are there for a reason. And so they should be given particular notice. Many of the names will be mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, so it is good to understand how these locations fit into the overall layout of the land. And more, like all things in Scripture, the names are given to alert us to other truths that God has tucked away in the Word. Despite that, it is complicated to sit down and derive everything one can about such a passage. Rather, it is the kind of thing that someone might do after pondering the passage over months or even years. I have a bit more than 10 hours on any given Monday to research the contents of a passage for a sermon. It can be tiring, even mentally debilitating, but it is also amazingly joyous to do so. Today's passage is not unimportant, except in how we may treat it. Let us not have that attitude towards God's Word. Let us do our best to draw out what the Word is telling us. I hope and pray what is presented here today accomplishes that end, even if it does not fully answer the meaning of what every name given is intended to reveal. Great things such as marvelous hidden types and pictures of Christ are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three individual thoughts for you today. The first is a possession according to their divisions. It's verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, and these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel conquered. The narrative details all of the kings conquered in the campaign to take Canaan. The words of this verse are in accord with what has already been recorded in chapters 10 and 11. Here's what it says, chapter 10, so Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country in the south and the lowland and the wilderness slopes, then all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea, as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. All these kings in their land, Joshua took one at a time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And then from Joshua 11, thus Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland, and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, from Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir, even as far as Baal God in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. Those are the areas and even the specific locations taken by Joshua. The kings who were taken are now to be named. They are those, verse 7 continues, on this side of the Jordan, on the west. More literally, it reads, Be'ever ha'yarden yama, inside the Jordan seaward. It is on a particular side of the Jordan, and that is the westward or seaward side, as it is looking toward the Mediterranean Sea. The word yam signifies both sea and 
and the direction west. The extent of the area goes, verse 7 continues, from Baal God in the valley of Lebanon as far as Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir. It is the same locations noted in Joshua 11:17, but they are listed from north to south here instead of south to north. Mi Baal God be bikat ha-Lebanon ve'ad ha-har he-chalak ha-ole se'era. From Baal Gad in the valley, the Lebanon, and unto the mount, the smooth, the ascender Seir. As was noted then, the name Baal Gad means Lord of Fortune, with a secondary meaning of Lord of the Invasion. This is because Gad, Fortune, comes from Gadad, meaning to cut or to invade. Baal simply means master, hence it is one with authority. Lebanon means white one, or even mountain of snow. However, it is derived from Lavan, meaning white. This is identical to Lavan, or brick, because bricks turn white when fired. That word carries the connotation of works, because bricks imply the work of man, as opposed to stone, which is fashioned by God. That goes all the way back to uh, Genesis 11 and the building of the Tower of Babel. The type of valley here, Bikat, comes from Baka, meaning to split or to cleave or to rend or to rip open. Hence, it is a valley that is a split between mountains. That is the northern demarcation. It then goes to the south, to the mount, the smooth. This is the second and last time that this is mentioned. As seen in chapter 11, the name comes from Halak, meaning smooth. For example, it was used in Genesis 27:11, saying, And Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Look, Esau my brother is a hairy man, and I am a smooth-skinned Halak man. The word is used figuratively in Proverbs and Ezekiel when speaking in a flattering manner because of the smooth tongue that is so employed. This mount is described next as the ascender, Seir. As was noted, Seir means hairy coming from Sayir, the word hairy. For example, it was used in Genesis 27, 11, saying, and this is the same thing we saw a week ago, and Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy, Sayir man, and I am a smooth-skinned man. By analogy, it also speaks of a he-goat, because the he-goat is a hairy animal. That is the animal used as a sin offering, such as on the Day of Atonement and elsewhere. These borders, then, are named in order to define all of the area, verse 7 continues, which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions. The words are similar to those of Joshua 11.23, with a few differences. Also, they are actually their own clause in the Hebrew. It says, Ve'yitena Yehoshua le'shivtei Yisrael Yerusha kalmach le'kotam and gave Joshua two tribes Israel inheritance according to their divisions. This anticipates the actual description of the division of the land coming up in Joshua 13. The kings are disinherited in order for Israel to then inherit the land. The rule of these kings is next noted by the various typological indicators, saying, verse 8, in the mountain country. As in Joshua 11, the land is next divided into seven divisions— Six are by location. The seventh division is for the six named people groups. This is the first division, Bahar, in the mountain. It means in the mountainous areas. Verse 8 continues, in the lowland. The second division, Uba Shephelah, and in the Shephelah, meaning the transitional region of soft, sloping, and rolling hills in the south-central Israel, stretching about six to nine miles in length. The word comes from shafel, meaning to become low or abased. It is the lowland, verse 8 continues, in the Jordan Plain. The third division, Uba Arava, and in the Arava. This is the plain that extends about 100 miles south from the Dead Sea to the Gulf of Aqaba, forming a border between Israel and Jordan. The word comes from Arav, meaning to grow dark or become evening. This is because of the darkness of the terrain. However, that is identical to the word arav, meaning to take or to give in pledge. Verse 8 continues, in the slopes. The fourth division, uba ashidot, and in the slopes. The word ashida comes from eshed, meaning a foundation, bottom, or lower part. That comes from a root signifying to pour. 
As such, some translations say springs, but this is more likely the slopes of the mountains. Cities built on them would be fortified and thus ideally located. Verse 8 continues in the wilderness, the fifth division, Uba Midbar, and in the wilderness. It signifies an area that is very dry and barren and thus sparsely inhabited. In scripture, the wilderness is equated to a place of testing and trial. This would predominantly be in the areas of Judah and Benjamin. It is an area noted in the New Testament, such as in Matthew 3, 1, and elsewhere. Verse 8 continues, and in the south. The sixth division, Uba Negev, and in the Negev. Negev means south, but it is also the designation of a specific location and is thus a proper noun, the south. It comes from an unused root, meaning to be parched, and the Negev is a very parched land. If you've ever been to Israel, you know that's true. All of this is the land of, verse 8 continues, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. This is the seventh division, which is naming the people groups rather than a location. Each of these names is stated in the singular, not the plural. The names mean Hittite, terror, terrible, fearsome, Amorite means talkers in the active or renown in the passive. Canaanite means humiliated, humbled, or even subdued. Parasite means a breach or eruption. Hivite means villagers or maybe specifically tent villagers. And Jebusite means treading down in the active sense or trodden underfoot in the passive sense. With the borders defined, the areas identified, and the people groups named, the listing next details the kings of the individual cities that were disinherited. When I was driving to the church today, I happened to be listening as the Bible goes through. I just play it continuously. It's on a continuous loop. I happen to be in Joshua chapter 12 today. And so I'm appreciating this so much more because I already have it grounded in my head from this morning. Plus all the times I practice it this week, but forget that. It was so nice to drive to church listening to the same passage that I'd be preaching on. Not planned, just happened that way. There is a land to be subdued, ruled by many kings, but just one leader will defeat them all. Because of his victories, my heart sings. Yes, the enemies have all seen their downfall. Our leader gained the victory because he is great. None can stand against him, not now, not ever. What was their land now belongs to his estate, and he offers it to whosoever. If you will believe in him, accepting his victory, you too can share in the inheritance of the saints. By faith alone it comes, works would be contradictory, so be sure to cast off the law's constraints. Our second thought today is 31 Kings. It's verses 9 through 24. I have worried about this particular set of verses since I started Joshua. It's just name after name saying one, one, one. How am I going to present this to you without boring you? I hope I don't. It's a very difficult passage to put into a sermon format for you, but we're going through the Bible line by line, and so I am presenting it to you as it is. I hope you can stay awake. Verse 9. The king of Jericho won. The listing is generally given in the order of the battles. The first location was Jericho, meaning place of fragrance. It has a secondary meaning of place of the moon. Verse 9 continues. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, won. Melech Ai Asher Mitzad Bet El Echad. King the Ai, which from side Bethel, won. The eye means the ruins. It is said to be located from the side of Bethel, meaning house of God. Verse 10. The king of Jerusalem won. The king of Hebron won. Of these kings, Albert Barnes notes, those enumerated in Joshua 12, 10 through 18, either belong to the league of the southern Canaanites, Joshua 10, 1, for example, the power of which was broken in the battle of Beth Haron, or were at any rate conquered in the campaign following that battle. The name Jerusalem has many possible meanings. For simplicity, it is foundation of peace. Hebron means alliance. Verse 11, the king of Jarmuth won. The king of Lachish won. Jarmuth means elevation. Lachish means obstinate. Verse 12, the king of Eglon won. The king of Gezer won. Eglon means heifer-like. Gezer means part or portion. Verse 13, the king of Debir won. The king of Geder won. Debir means place of the word. 
Gader is found only here in scripture. It comes from Gadar, meaning to wall up or around. Hence, it means wall. Verse 14, the king of Hormah won, the king of Arad won. Horma is a name given in Numbers 21.3. It means anathema. Arad is mentioned in Numbers 21.1 in the same account as Horma. Arad comes from either an unused root, meaning to sequester and thus a fugitive, or from a root which signifies untamed, such as a wild donkey. Either way, the result is the same. It carries the sense of one who is unrestrained. To understand the significance of these locations, a review of the Numbers 21 sermon, which I thoroughly love that sermon, would be a good thing for you to do in your free time. Verse 15, the king of Livna won, the king of Adullam won. Livna means whiteness. However, that comes from Levan, a verb meaning to make white or make bricks because bricks whiten when they are made. Adullam is first seen here. It means refuge or the justice of the people. Verse 16, the king of Makeda won, the king of Bethel won. Makeda means place of shepherds. Bethel means house of God. Verse 17, the king of Tapua won, the king of Hefer won. Tapuach is introduced here and it will be seen six times. It comes from nafach, signifying to breathe or blow. It means love apple, being identical to tapuach found in Proverbs 25.11 and several times in the Song of Solomon. Its name is derived from its fragrance. Hefer means either well from the word dig or shame. It could be a combination of the two, well of shame. Verse 18, the king of Afek won, the king of Lasharon won. Melech Afek Echad, Melech Lasharon Echad. King Afek won, king to the Sharon won. The words to the Sharon would indicate the district of Sharon. Afek is first seen here. It comes from Afak, meaning to contain, refrain, or be strong. Hence, it is fortress. Sharon is also introduced here. It signifies great plain, but also body armor. Verse 19, the king of Madon won, the king of Hatzor won. Of the rest of the verses, Albert Barnes notes, those mentioned in Joshua 12, 19 through 24, were in like manner connected with the northern confederates. That's Joshua 11, 1 again, who were defeated at the waters of Merom. Madon means contention or strife. Chatzor has various meanings based on its root that signifies to begin, to cluster, or gather. It may mean village. Think of a village gathering together, trumpet, gathering the people together, leek, enclosure, and so on. Verse 20, the king of Shimron Maron won. The king of Achshaf won. Shimron Maron was mentioned in Joshua 11 verse 1 simply as Shimron. Shimron means watching or vigilant guardian. The word maron comes from a word signifying well-fed or fat. Hence, this would mean vigilance and prosperity. Ashaf signifies fascination or bewitched. Verse 21, the king of Ta'anach won, the king of Megiddo won. Both locations are introduced here. The meaning of Ta'anach is completely uncertain. Some think it is derived from an Egyptian word, others from an Arabic word. There is no corresponding root word that is found in scripture. Megiddo comes from gadad, to penetrate or cut. Hence, it signifies invading or intruding. Verse 22, the king of Kadesh won, the king of Jokniam in Carmel won. Melech Kadesh Echad, Melech Yaknoam La Carmel Echad. King Kadesh won. King Jokneam to the Carmel won. Kadesh means sanctuary or sacred place, coming from Kodesh, meaning holy. Jokneam is first found here and then only twice more in Joshua. It means either people will be lamented or let the people acquire. It is said to be to the Carmel, meaning in the district of Carmel. That means plantation or orchard. Verse 23, the king of Dor in the heights of Dor won. The heights of Dor is literally the sieves of Dor. The meaning is that as a sieve is raised, it pours out. Hence, it signifies heights as it's building up or borders of an area as the borders come out like a sieve. Dor means to dwell. 
but it is identical to the word translated as generation, as in the time period of one's dwelling, my generation will say. Verse 23 continues, the king of the people of Gilgal, one, Melech Goyim Legilgal Echad, king, nations, to Gilgal, one. This is not the Gilgal where Joshua and Israel encamped. There is a lot of speculation where this was or what the real meaning of the word is. Gilgal means rolling away, a wheel, or a circle of stones, and metaphorically it means liberty. Verse 24, the king of Tirzah, one. Tirzah means delight or pleasantness. Verse 24 finishes with all the kings, 31. This is the total number of kings subdued on the west side of the Jordan River to this point in Joshua. Bullinger uses Hebrew gematria to define the meaning of the number. The number comes from the letters Aleph, which is one, and Lamed, which is 30. It is the number of El, or God. Hence, he defines it as deity. Combining them with the two from the east side, and the total number of kings is actually 33. The number is derived from three, signifying that which is solid, real, substantial, complete, and entire, and 11, which is the number that marks disorder, disorganization, imperfection, and disintegration. Hence, 3 and 11 are two seemingly contradictory numbers. Okay, the reason why I highlighted the Demetria there is because Bollinger will normally take things and define them in a different manner than he did, except here. Instead of doing it by the way he normally does it, five means grace, he took the numbers in gematria, if you don't know what it is, is an equivalent value. In the Hebrew, they have a numbering system. The first letter of the alphabet is Aleph, and that equals one. The second is Bet, it equals two, and so on. When you get to 10, the next one is 20, 30, 40, up to 100, then you go 200, 300, 400. So you can derive all numbers from the system of gematria. And that is what he did there. It's different than what he normally does, showing that it's a very complicated thing, and he sat down and thought it through. But it was brilliant that he did it that way. 31 kings met their end in the war because God himself fought for us. This is the victory of which he swore, and it has come about through the giving of Jesus. 31 kings all have met their end, and the inheritance is now offered to us. To our helpless state, he did attend. God heard our voice and sent the Lord Jesus. Great is God to his people Israel, and we have come to know what he has done for us. Of his great deeds we shall all the world tell, because we now have come to know the Lord Jesus. Our third thought today is pictures of Christ. There are obviously a lot of names of both people and places in this section. Hence, to fit everything into typology correctly may be beyond what is possible, but I will give it my best analysis. We have to look at things from the perspective that the book of Joshua is given to highlight the victories of the Lord. The first half of the chapter was a picture of those who had come to Christ prior to national Israel's salvation. Hence, it would logically follow that this is picturing the same for Israel as a nation now. That is seen with the words inside the Jordan seaward. It is that area west of the Jordan. The sea is the place furthest west. In Revelation 4, we see the throne of God, and before him is a sea of glass. Hence, John would have been east of both the sea and the throne. I note this so you can get the sense. The biblical idea is that man approaches God from the east and always anticipates him as he moves west. This is seen, for example, in the layout of the tabernacle in the temple. With this understanding, the borders of the land here in Joshua 12 are defined as those on the north and on the south. The meaning would be the same as was previously given in Joshua 11 sermon. Therefore, the words from Baal God in the Valley of Lebanon would typologically mean from the Lord of the invasion in the cleaving of the works. In other words, Christ came as a man aware of the consequences of sin. He accomplished all that was necessary under the law to bring man back to God. It is his works that make it possible. All other works are insufficient to accomplish the purpose. 
the words, as far as Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir, look to the sinless Jesus who came in the appearance of sinful man. Mount Halak is the smooth mountain representing a sinless nature. Heron scripture speaks of awareness, especially awareness of sin. Jesus came knowing no sin. That is found in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, pictured by the smooth mountain. But he came in the likeness of sinful man. That's found in Hebrews 2.17, pictured by the hairy mountain, in order to accomplish his work. Hence, these borders define his nature and the scope of his work. This is highlighted by the words of verse 7, noting Joshua gave this land to the tribes of Israel. Simply change Joshua, the Lord is salvation, in the earthly sense, to Jesus, the Lord who is salvation in the spiritual sense. From there, the six types of land divisions were named. In chapter 11, these six divisions are referring each to Christ. They are the mountain, the lowland, the arava, the slopes, the wilderness, and the south, meaning the Negev. He is one, the gatherer of God's people. Two, the one who abased himself in order to bring the humbled to God. Three, the one through whom the pledge, meaning the Holy Spirit, is given. Four, the foundation upon which all else is built. Go to 1 Corinthians 3.11. Five, the one who was tested and tried and yet who prevailed. And six, the giver of water, life through the word in the otherwise parched world. The seventh division, that of the six people groups, anticipates Christ's victory over those who each group represents. They are the same listing of people mentioned in Joshua 3.10, 9.1, and 11.3. With that noted, the account then turned to the defeat of the 31 kings, naming their locations. As the kings are unnamed, but the locations are named, it would indicate the land which is inherited by Israel. It is certain that each location tells its own story, and every location is a part of the whole. However, were I to attempt to define each, I would have to make things up as I went, something I refused to do. This is especially so when the meaning of one of the locations, Ta'anach, is wholly unknown. The names that can be found for it in various references are simply best guesses. I will give you the best meaning I can from my studies in one quick list. Okay, this is the meaning of all of the names that we just went through. Place of Fragrance, The Ruins, and it said From the Side of Bethel, Foundation of Peace, Alliance, Elevation, Obstinate, Heifer-like, Portion, Place of the Word, Wall, Anathema, Untamed, Whiteness, meaning works, Refuge, or Justice of the People, Place of Shepherds, House of God, Love Apple, which when my uh, secretary was checking my, my uh, sermon typing, I got a little note pointing that, saying, that's my favorite. <laughs> well or shame, fortress, to the great plain or body armor, contention, to begin to cluster or gather, vigilance and prosperity, fascination, and then I put a question mark because nobody really knows what Ta'anach means. Next one is invading, sacred place, let the people acquire in orchard, and then generation in the seeds, meaning the heights of generation, nations of liberty, and delight. Some of the meanings are obvious. We know from previous sermons in Deuteronomy and Joshua that Jericho, the place of fragrance, anticipates Christ's restoration of us to paradise, meaning access to heaven. I, the ruins, represented Christ's victory over the law. Jerusalem, or foundation of peace, seems obvious as anticipating the peace offered through Jesus. That can be more fully seen in the New Testament references, such as Galatians 4 and Hebrews 12. We might be able to equate Sharon, which means body armor, with Paul's words concerning putting on the whole armor of God, which is given by Christ, and so on. But there is a point where we can make anything say anything. I don't want to do that. We can be satisfied that God knows exactly why each location is listed and that each has its own typological anticipation of Christ. Someone may be able to do a more thorough job on a listing than I have, and that would be just great with me. 
but I would recommend anyone making such a list to provide the references for each name and how they came to their conclusions. Otherwise, such a list would be pick and choose, and we should not go there. As for the final words of the chapter, Bullinger approached the meaning of the number 31 in a different manner than he normally does by defining it based on gematria. That is a valid science, but it can be very easily manipulated as well. His conclusion of the meaning of 31, however, beautifully matches the domain conquered by Joshua. As he anticipates Christ Jesus, and as Christ is El, meaning God, Canaan anticipates the victory of God in Christ over all of his foes and the granting of the full inheritance to his people. Finally, and because there are those of the inheritance on both sides of the Jordan, the total number of defeated kings, 33, would presumably have meaning as well. As I noted, the number is derived from three, signifying that which is solid, real, substantial, complete, and entire, and 11, which is the number which marks disorder, disintegration, imperfection, and disorganization. Together, these seemingly two contradictory numbers would appear to look to the state of the world even during the millennium after Israel has come to Christ, as still lacking its final restoration, hence the need for a new heaven and a new earth as promised in the book of Revelation. This can be seen in the words of Hebrews chapter 2. Here's what it says. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels, but one is testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put in all subjection under him, he left nothing that is not under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. What Christ has done is solid, it is real, it is substantial, and it is complete, and it is entire. And yet, there will be a mark of disorder, disorganization, imperfection, and disintegration on this earth until it finds its final and forever renewal. That's seen, for example, in the Battle of Gog and Magog, right towards the end of Revelation, at the end of the millennium. There's no reason to dismiss this as either speculation or stretching the meaning to fit a hoped-for outcome. The definitions provided by Bollinger beautifully match the state of things in the world as they are and as they will be until the final consummation of the redemptive scenario laid out in Scripture. The chapter is concluded logically with what has come before it in the winning of the battles, the marking out of the territory, and how all of it anticipates the victories of the Lord on behalf of his people. It is also a chapter of assurance for each of us in our own battles. Consider that God was so attentive to the needs of Israel that he watched over them and gave them victory after victory. As these victories anticipate the victories of Christ Jesus to secure our salvation and that of Israel as a nation, then we can be assured that he is watching over us just as closely when we belong to him. Keep that in mind. Everything you're seeing in Joshua is just a picture of what he's doing for the people of the world right now. It would be contradictory and it would be perverse to think that God saved us through all of the troubles and trials that Christ faced for him to then say, okay, you're on your own in this life. Rather, in reading Joshua, and indeed all of Scripture, we can be even more assured that God has the best plan for us in the lives that we lead. So hold on to that thought and be reassured by it. When we are in Christ, we're God's children. As he is the perfect father, we can know that he is perfectly attentive to us from moment to moment. Thank God for Jesus Christ who has made this possible. What a wonderful, loving God. I'm telling you what, even in just a bunch of names, a bunch of kings and places that you've probably never heard of, and some of them, they don't even know where they are to this day, you can find order, you can find structure, you can find harmony, and you can find the truth that God has everything settled and perfectly taken care of. And as I said, I'll repeat it. I said it three paragraphs ago. 
If he put all of that attention into a bunch of genealogical and geographical listings that nobody really cares about in the world today, think of what he has done for us in our own lives. This has eternal consequences. I mean, everything in our life is being directed by God. So when you have a difficult day, when you have difficult times, you have to step back and say, there must have been a purpose for this. Okay, I went through that on Friday, getting myself electrocuted and getting myself cramped into that place. I mean, it was a terrible day. And I kept saying, you know what? He must still have a purpose for me because I'm still alive, right? And the next day I'm feeling really bad. I got that cold and I said, I sure hope I can get through this. But I didn't do something stupid. I was so tempted, even feeling bad, to go down and cut more trees in the morning. I thought, I just got to do this because I want to get this done while it's cool. And what did I do? I told you, I pulled a muscle in my back. And so I didn't do that. So the Lord kept me from myself. Exactly. He's taking care of us. I mean, who would thank God for a, a pain in the back? And it still hurts right now. It's not as bad, but thank God that he takes care of us, even in things that we aren't thinking about, right? He's there to take care of you. Be assured and be reassured of that, okay? Here's the gospel, because there might be somebody that's listening right now or somebody that watches this later and doesn't understand everything I just said. Well, guess what? Neither do I and neither does anybody here. There's a lot of information in this sermon that we just had to take on faith. God has a purpose for it. But the main thing for us to remember is the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ came. He lived the life that you can't live and that I can't live perfection in his birth, perfection in his life, and then he offered that perfection up on the cross of Calvary. He said, I'm going to give my life in exchange for all of the garbage in this world, all of the sin that we've ever committed. I will take upon myself the punishment that you deserve for that. And he died on that cross, giving up his life, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, which is found all the way through the Old Testament scriptures. I'm going down to Jerusalem with this beautiful little lamb. Everybody here has seen a little lamb and how cute they are. That's, think of Jesus, the lamb of God. They go down to Jerusalem, they say, I have sinned in the presence of a holy God, and I want to have my sin taken away. And so the priest says, I want you to put your hand on the head of this lamb and confess your sins, and then he goes and slices the neck of that animal, and it bleeds out. And as terrible as that seems to us, we all are going to go home and have lamb for dinner, so it had to die some way. And secondly, if you like lamb, I do, but secondly, that lamb is just an animal. It's not the Lord Jesus. It's only a picture of the more perfect sacrifice that God has given us. So when you think, oh, those poor animals, oh, that poor Jesus that did this for me, that is what God did. He took what we deserved in the substitutionary atonement and said, I am taking my righteousness and placing it on you, and I am taking your sin and placing it on him. He who knew no sin became sin so that we can be the righteousness of God in him. And all God asks you to do, here it is, is believe. Believe that. That is grace. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. It's the most simple word in the world, and yet we can't get it right. Grace, accept what God has done, and then go forth and praise him all the days of your life for the release of the yoke that was upon you, the bondage that you bore on your back. Thank God for Jesus Christ. We've got a closing verse from Psalm 105. He gave them lands of the Gentiles. And they inherited the labor of the nations that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. That was the intent of it. And Israel failed at that. And they were exiled. And they came back and they failed again. And they were cast among the nations. And now he's putting them back in there a third time. And this time they're going to get it right. And they're going to call on Jesus. And a new direction for Israel will come about. I read a great, great commentary on dispensationalism as opposed to reform theology today. Burke sent it to me. It was very well done. It was not deep in any way, shape, or form, but he gave reasons why people are bucking against dispensationalism. And most of it goes to the fact that people are not skilled in their Bible, okay? And like people that are being led astray by all of these agendas, the perverse agendas on the left, people just don't know, and they're not willing to think things through. And so there are other reasons he gave, but in the end, to reject the fact that God has a plan for Israel is basically to reject a literal reading of the Bible. 
because you know what? I had never heard of any theology. I couldn't have told you what a dispensational model or a form. I couldn't have tell, told you any of that when I read the Bible. But I sat in the, the building right down the road here, right by the Thai restaurant was where my business was. And I read that Bible 10 hours a day. I finished the Bible every week for over two years. Once a week, I read it. And as I was reading it, the one thing that I was certain of was that Jesus died for my sins. And the second thing is that God had a plan for Israel. It's that clear as long as you don't get infected by people's opinions about things that really don't know what they're talking about. God will never reject Israel because God is God. Doesn't matter how disobedient they are, just go look in the mirror and you'll see somebody just as disobedient, okay? He will never reject you, okay? Next week, Joshua 13, 1 through 14, getting one's inheritance sure is grand. It's entitled, Now Therefore... Divide this land. That'll be our 27th Joshua sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who has defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Uh, I'm getting a lot of really somber looks at me today. I've got one, two, I got five, one, two, three, four people in here that haven't eaten a bite in eight days, uh, and uh, three of them haven't eaten a bite in nine days, okay? They're on their annual fast. One of them's a semi-annual fast. I mean, talk about insane, but um, uh, I'm getting a lot of long, gaping stares at me from some people, so I want you to enjoy. Whoever wins this, I want you to enjoy this, okay? And if they win it, I want them to look at it and suffer until their 21-day fast is over. Wow. Okay, this is, this is a favorite of mine. I, I, I'm not going to give it away now. I'll tell you after we get the answer. Jehoram was a really bad king. He also came to a very bad end. What happened to Jehoram? No, that's uh, from the Apocrypha. It's uh, about Isaiah. But that's a good guess. Who said that? Did she say that first, or did somebody say it before? She did. Oh, I'm just wondering if two people. Did you get that back there? No. Okay. Uh, uh, you, you are not going to believe this. This is unbelievable. Your brother gave that to me, and I was like, I don't want to eat. That looks like peanut butter. Okay. It's, wow. Okay. Try it out. Take a little spoonful. Don't eat a lot, because it's really filling. But it's true. What happened is, I'm, I'm going to read you the account. Let's just do this. Great, great story, and I'll tell you why I like this account. This is a wonderful thing to uh, remember as you are going to um, uh, visit people in the hospital. I'll tell you what I do. This is one of the things I do. Hang on. I'm trying to find it here. i got to just get in between kings and... Uh, okay, uh, we're going to go to 2 Chronicles. All right, and we're in uh, chapter uh, 21... Okay, 2 Chronicles 21. I'm going to start in verse 12. Don't get grossed out, okay? And a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord God of your father David, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, or in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and have made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot like the harlotry of the house of Ahav, and also have killed your brothers, those of your father's households who were better than yourself, behold, the Lord will strike your people with a serious affliction, your children, your wives, and all your possessions, and you will become very sick with the disease of your intestines until your intestines come out by reason of the sickness day by day. And I'm going to keep going. Yes. Moreover, the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines and the Arabians who were near the Ethiopians. And they came up into Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions that were found in the king's house and also his sons and his wives so that there was not a son left to him except Jehoahaz, the youngest of his sons. After all this, the Lord struck him in his intestines with an incurable disease. Then it happened in the course of time, after the end of two years, that his intestines came out because of his sickness, so he died in severe pain. And his people made no burning for him, like the burning for his fathers. Bad dude met a bad end. Here's why I like that story. Don't freak out. When I go to the hospital, and uh, up until COVID, I used to like, live there, okay? And then COVID, I haven't gotten, I think, two calls or two people have gotten sick that I've had to go visit. Now, I try to visit every time somebody is in the hospital, if possible, okay? 
I go there, and if they had a heart surgery, I pull out a lot of verses about the heart. The heart is desperately wicked, or whatever. You know, I take these, okay. Or if somebody has, like Jim has had every part on his body replaced, and so when he had his hip replaced, I got one for the hip. You know, um, what's a Samson uh, slew them, hip and thigh, right? So I, I find verses to match the body parts. Well, if you go in there and you've had intestinal surgery, I ask before I read, do you want to hear the Bible's comment on that? And one of my friends said, yeah, bring it on, baby. Nick Figolo, you know Nick. Other than him, most people say, I don't want to know. So, But that's what I try to do is encourage you with something from the Bible. And the intestinal one isn't so great. Okay, we've got a poem to go through. Congratulations to you on the intestine thing. All right. This is entitled An Inheritance Seaward. And these are the kings of the country which conquered Joshua and the children of Israel on this side of the Jordan on the west from Baal God in the valley of Lebanon, as the record does tell. As far as Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir without any noted revisions, which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession, according to their divisions. In the mountain country, in the lowlands, in the Jordan plain, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the south, yes, those sites. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. Isn't this fun? The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. We'll make it rhyme with the word pun. The king of Deber, one. The king of Geder, one. The king of Hormah, one. The king of Arad, one. We'll be done before the setting of the sun. The king of Livna, one. The king of Ajalam, one. The king of Makeda, one. The king of Bethel, one. A few more before this list is done. The king of Tapua, one. The king of Hefer, one. The king of Aphek, one. The king of Lasharon, one. This is a ton of fun. The king of Madon, one. The king of Hatsor, one. The king of Shimron, Maron, one. The king of Achshaf, one. One is more than none. The king of Ta'anach, one. The king of Megiddo, one. The king of Kadesh, one. The king of Jachmiam in Carmel, one. His city got overrun. The king of Dor in the heights of Dor, one. The king of the people of Gilgal, one. The king of Terza, one. All the kings, 31. And now we're done. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. That was the best one yet. Thank you. I, I will tell you, the only other time I remember getting an applause for one of those was on the beach with the Genesis 36 sermon, which was the Generations of Esau, name after name. And when I was done, they applauded. So it's very hard to do that, but I'm glad that you were laughing through it. Heavenly Father. Thank you for the wonderful blessing of your word. Thank you for the preciousness of it and help us always to treat it with the utmost respect and yet with the greatest of joy. Thank you that we can cherish it in our hearts. We can meditate on it and dwell on it and just savor it from moment to moment. Help us to be responsible and read your word, to listen to your word, to share it with others and above all to tell about Jesus who is the source of of all the goodness in this world, and without him, there is none. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, and it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen.